to another episode of Trans Regrets Newbie Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, here to speak with me about John 12, 24, Christopher Stedman. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, we, uh, we have a lot to talk about as far as your background with faith, um, but first, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and what you're involved with now? Sure, sure. Um, so I kind of have my like finger in a lot of different places or whatever the <laughs> expression is. Um, I am doing what many of us do these days, which is like piecing together a living from doing lots of different stuff. And so my sort of day job, I guess, is I'm a professor in a department of religion and philosophy. So I teach at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and specifically I teach a class called Religion 200, Religion, Vocation, and the Search for Meaning 2. Like it's a sequel. It is literally (laughs) a sequel to Religion 100, which is on Religion, Vocation, and the Search for Meaning. Um, And what's really interesting to me about this course is... So Augsburg was founded as a training school for Lutheran missionaries back in the day. Um, But obviously, um, a lot has changed both at Augsburg and in the sort of religious landscape of the United States more broadly. And Augsburg reflects a lot of those changes. And so the student body at Augsburg is majority non-Lutheran at this point. it's Augsburg is located right in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, which is um, the Cedar Riverside neighborhood has the largest percentage of Somalians anywhere in the world outside of the country of Somalia. And so a lot of students at Augsburg are from the neighborhood and are Muslim or at least grew up in a Muslim family. Um, we have a lot of students who practice indigenous spirituality, who practice shamanism. And then there are also a lot of students who are sort of non-religious or um, what people who study religious demographics often refer to as nothing in particulars. So people who, when they're asked what they believe or what they identify with religiously, just sort of say like nothing really. Um, and, And yet there's this vestigial religion requirement at Augsburg because of its Lutheran heritage and its Lutheran identity still to this day. And so all students have to take two religion classes and they all have to take 100. And then they have a choice between taking either, um, you know, something of their choosing in the religion department or 200. Um, And so 200 really is like the students who are really just meeting their requirement. A lot, a lot of the students, you know, um, they're, they're just like, okay, what am I going to take next? 200. All right. Um, and so what I love about teaching this class is I see my like primary challenge as, um, you know, making this class a meaningful experience for the students who take it, um, knowing that most of them are, are taking this class because they have to, um, you know, my goal is not to like make them all into religious studies majors or make them all super passionate about religion, but to make it so that the class is actually like useful for them, that they come out on the other side, having had the opportunity to, you know, be stretched um, personally, to think more deeply about what matters to them and why, where they find meaning in their lives. Um, And also, I mean, you know, we live right now in 
perhaps the most religiously diverse society in the history of the world, but religious literacy rates are super low. And so I also see it as this opportunity to try to help a lot of these students who, you know, maybe haven't been given a lot of chances to learn about religion to become more comfortable having those conversations and have some working foundational knowledge about it so that they can go out into the world and have more meaningful conversations about it. So that's what I do by day. Um, And in addition to teaching at Augsburg, I've also just um, stepped into this uh, role there, helping to sort of um, work on some of their curriculum and stuff like that. And then on the side, I write um, and, um, you know, I so I've written a couple of books. My most recent one is on the Internet and how it's impacting our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to live a meaningful life and and to be real and <laughs> whatever that means. And then uh, even more recently, I, um, you know, ended up making an audio project. Um, so I made this podcast called Unread that came out uh, in summer 2021. So very recently. And, um, you know, I never sort of set out to be a podcaster. I'm very content writing books. I'm very comfortable in that space. Um, but the the project, um, as it started to come together, it became super clear to me that audio was really like the way to tell the story. Um, and so uh, I kind of stumbled into this um, podcasting world and <laughs> it's a limited run series. So it was just four episodes. Um, but, uh, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm always like the focus of my religion 200 class. Um, often we sort of, or a lot of the class, we look at how religions use stories to make sense of the world around us. And, um, and so, you know, then I get the students thinking not just about religion and stories there, but also their own stories and the sort of power of stories to help shape how we understand who we are. And so I'm really interested in, in how we use stories to construct meaning in our lives. And one thing I learned while making this most recent project is that there's a lot of um, things you can do in audio that you can't do in the written word. And um, I appreciated that opportunity to sort of tell a story in a new way. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, it's sort of hard to like say, here's what I do for a living, which is, <laughs> <laughs> I think, a challenge many of us have, especially like in this sort of like hustle economy where you're just supposed to like take whatever jobs you can. But I think ultimately, if I had to like put it under one big umbrella (laughs) is I'm interested in how as human beings, we make sense of our lives. And, you know, I think like ultimately in the same way that like foundational fundamental human needs um, include like having, you know, a roof over your head, having food and water, um, you know, those are the things we sort of need to physically survive. Um, but I think we also have this foundational need for meaning. You know, we need a, a sense that the lives that we are living amount to something and matter for some reason or another. And I'm interested in how we try to find that meaning. Um, and ultimately, I, everything I try to do, um, you know, hopefully uh, helps create space for people to think about that because uh, I think it's important to think about and I can't stop thinking about it in my own <laughs> life. So anyway, that was a, hopefully that wasn't too much, but. No, that was, um, that was 
Perfect. Well, first, first of all, I think um, the podcast is awesome, and um, everyone should go check it out. It's called Unread. Again, um, go go listen to it. I, it's everywhere. Podcasts are available. Um, super compelling story. Very well put together. The production is awesome, and um, it's it's worth a listen for anyone. Thanks. But I wanted to kind of touch on um, this this moment that we're in. This sort of spiritual moment uh, in the world today. You were mentioning the. Um, our particular society being very diverse with respect to the number of religions that people are practicing or how they practice them. But um, the generation that we're in and the generation that comes after us are um, largely falling into this category of either atheist or spiritual but not religious, right? Um, Fewer and fewer people are identifying with a particular denomination of any religion, and more and more of them are saying, um, well, if I do believe in God, I do, but not in the way that not in the way that my parents did and not in the way that my grandparents did and certainly not in the way that it's been used, you know, as, as like a, a bludgeoning tool over the course of history. But like, um, I believe in God as like a unifying love, as like a, um, an element in our lives that can enrich us and, and um, bring us together. Um, how, as, as an atheist, do you approach teaching religion to people even if they are religious? Like, obviously, you don't let that spill into your teaching, but how does that inform your religious studies teaching? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I guess I'd say a few things. Um, first of all, you know, so I, prior to, you know, I've been teaching now for a little while, but for the majority of my, like, professional life, I was actually a humanist chaplain. So I worked at Harvard and at Yale, um, and my job was to help support the quote-unquote spiritual lives of religiously unaffiliated people. So, you know, there were Catholic chaplains, Muslim chaplains, Hindu chaplains, and then the humanist chaplain was like everyone else. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and, um, so ultimately... You know, I yes, I'm an atheist, but so many of the students that I would end up working with were all over the place spiritually. And so, you know, and and really any chaplain, no matter what their own personal religious affiliation is, like their job is to help support the individual that they're working with in making, you know, meaning in their own life, whatever that looks like. And so I I take that same approach when I'm teaching, like I'm very open with my students about what I believe and where I come from, but I also, you know, hopefully create an environment where they feel not only like it's okay or safe for them to articulate their own perspective on these things, but that that's encouraged. And so, you know, the thing that, so what's something that I think about constantly that's like maybe one of the things I care about most. It's hard to say that because there's so many things to care about. But one of the things I personally care about the most, I think, is that is has to do with some of what you were just talking about. So we're in this moment right now where um, institutional religion is very much on the decline in in the United States. Um, Not just in the sense that there are more and more people who are saying that they don't identify with a religion personally, but even people who do consider themselves religious um, are participating in their communities at much lower levels. So like what constitutes regular participation, quote unquote, is far lower now than what it used to. Um, And, you know, this rise of the nuns, and it's important to specify here, we're talking about N-O-N-E-S's, not N-U-N-S's. <laughs> the rise of the the people who say that they're not religious, they don't claim any religion, um, has been this like big news story over the last five, 10 years. 
And a lot of my fellow atheists are always like championing it. They're like, look, like religion's on the decline and we're on the rise. And I definitely don't share that like celebratory response for a few reasons. One is that actually, like, if you look at the data, the people who say that they're not religious is rising, but the number of people who say that they're atheists is actually only rising a little bit. So the majority of the people who say that they're not religious fall into the this sort of category of nothing in particular or spiritual but not religious. So we're seeing this huge increase of people who say that they're not religious. We're seeing only a tiny increase of people who say that they're atheists. So first of all, they're not even right about that when, <laughs> when they champion that. Um, but second of all, I think what it reflects is not this sort of rejection of religion, but rather this rejection of institutions, um, which we're seeing like across society. Like it's not just a religion thing. We're seeing it in our political lives. Like people are feeling disaffected by political parties and considering themselves more politically independent and, you know, all of these things. They've seen the failures of these institutions and the way that they've been hypocritical. Again, this is like something... If you look at the survey data on the nuns, you see like very a very high percentage of them say they see religious institutions as being hypocritical, um, all of these things. Um, but the thing that concerns me is, look, I, you know, I, I totally get the disaffection with institutions. I feel it myself. I also absolutely understand the disaffection with religious institutions specifically as someone who, as a queer person, you know, I've been very, I've experienced the harm that these institutions can wield very personally, which we can talk more about if you'd like. But um, I also know that these institutions at their best do really important things. You know, they provide structure for people to, you know, have sort of regular opportunities to think about questions that I think are really important to think about in life. So, you know, if you go to a healthy church, you know, that is functioning in the way that like churches at their best should, you have this opportunity every week to be sort of, to check in with yourself and ask yourself, am I living life in the way that I aspire to? Am I living life aligned with my highest values? Um, You have this space where hopefully you're being challenged to think about those kinds of things or being held accountable to, you know, the kind of person that you're trying to be. And, you know, religious traditions have you know, they are these sets of stories, but they're also these sets of practices, of ways of orienting oneself to the world, um, of checking in with yourself, all these things that I think are really important. And it's not a surprise. I've been working for the last couple of years with a group of sociologists to try and study the religiously unaffiliated and understand them better. And it's no surprise that among the nuns or the nothing in particulars, you see much higher levels of sort of checking out of society. So like lower education levels, lower voting levels, all these things. And there was a period of time where people who study religious demographics were looking at all sort of non-religious people and saying, well, look, they, in all these different ways, they are less civically engaged than religious people. They vote less, they volunteer less, they give less money to charity, all these things. But if you actually break out atheists and humanists and agnostics from these nothing in particulars, you actually see that atheists, agnostics, humanists have the same levels of 
engagement with the world around them as religious people do. They're thinking about their lives in these ways. They're, you know, but it's these nothing in particulars who are sort of adrift in society in some ways, um, who are not maybe being sort of regularly challenged to think about how they're living in the world that um, kind of bring down the average of the whole group. And so for me, that's the group that I sort of worry about. um, And that's the group that's sort of growing fastest in our um, religious landscape. And again, that's a big part of why teaching this class is exciting to me because I see it as this opportunity to carve out some intentional space in the lives of some of these people to think about questions that I think are really important to think about. And the very last thing I'll say on this, it, it's such a big, complex topic, so we could it's talk huge. about it forever. No, it's huge, but, yeah, totally. a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Vice on the growing number of um, religiously unaffiliated young white men who are being sort of pulled into the alt-right. And I was talking about it through the lens of movement atheism and you know how sort of figures like Sam Harris have kind of functioned as this doorway into the alt-right for some young white male atheists, but... You know, the, the the truth is that a lot of these folks who are sort of deinstitutionalized, who are suspicious of institutions, you know, they still need animating narratives for their lives. They, they still have these same human needs that we all have, the need to belong, the need to have meaning in your life. And they're vulnerable to being targeted by groups like the alt-right, like white supremacist movements that mm. are, are going to give them those, you know, the, that sense of belonging, that sense of identity. And... So this is part of why I feel like it's super urgent to like think and talk about this group of people who aren't, you know, really being given or they've just sort of disconnected from these institutions that are inherently about forcing you to like think about who you are and what matters to you. And I'm not saying that the solution is Like, because I don't think, and this, again, the data kind of suggests this, I don't think a lot of these people are going to return to religious institutions. Like, I think what religious institutions are going to look like moving forward is going to be super different than what they've looked like. But I do think that we have to figure out how to make sure these folks are, again, for lack of a better word, attending to their spiritual lives, you know, thinking about um, what their responsibility is to the world around them and what their place is in this world, um, because other people are going to give them answers to those questions that are, you know, bad people. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. There is, yeah, there's so much to talk about here, um, and I'm not really sure exactly where to to start. I know, I'm uh, sorry, I'm like no, doing a big dump, but these are the things no, that like keep me perfect. up at night. <laughs> there's so much, and, and I knew that we would, we would get into a lot of different stuff because of your background and because of um, everything that you're involved with and, and because of um, the, the growing... Uh, section of people, the nuns, as you refer to them, which I'm sure for some people that like clicks, I see a habit in my head every time. <laughs> I know, every time I, I know. Every time I know, say it, I studied with, um, I studied under some sisters when I was doing my my graduate studies in religion. So it's still, for me, it's like still hard <laughs> not to do that, have that link to. Um, the thing that, the first thing that popped in my head when you said that people are growing skeptical of institutions um, is first of all, it's absolutely true. Like populism is on the rise in every political part of the spectrum and uh, people have increasingly seen like these, um, these things that we used to trust as reliable sources of authority or power or, um, guidance, 
uh, education, however that may be, people are increasingly growing skeptical of that. It kind of reminds me of uh, like what I heard the Catholic Church was like right before the Reformation. Uh, it was just like people were becoming increasingly aware of how screwed up the church was, the terrible things that the church was doing. And finally, someone actually kind of moved on it and acted on it, which makes me a little bit excited, like for the spiritual future of like our society, because maybe a new Reformation could come out of this that could be amazing and, yeah. and, and, you know, could really change the face of, of, you know, how people perceive faith, how they perceive religion, um, how they interact with other people in their religions, you know, people that don't share a faith with them. Um, like it's a really yeah. cool concept, but it is, it's a scary point in time right now because yeah, people are being led into all kinds of crazy directions. Uh, ones that are actively harmful, not just to themselves, but to the people around. Them. Yeah, so. absolutely. And you know, I, so I, I don't know if I even really actually answered the question you posed because, <laughs> you know, I didn't really talk that much about my own sort of atheism, but like, you know, what I think that, so obviously like there's tons of misconceptions about atheists. Like there, you know, we, you hear atheists, you picture Richard Dawkins, who is like terrible for 12 different reasons. And, um, and you know, you picture this very sort of anti-religious, very condescending, very whatever. When, of course, like, you know, and this is a, every community experiences this, like the loudest voices tend to become representative, even when they're actually not. Mm. Um, Westboro Baptist Church was like less than 100 people, but played a huge role in shaping the public imagination's sort of understanding of Christianity. But of course, like, if you see Westboro Baptist Church on the news, you're like, well, they suck. But also, like, my neighbor is Christian and she's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is atheists represent such a small percentage of the population. I think it's like around 6% of people say that they identify as atheists in the most recent data. And so there's just not as many opportunities for atheists to sort of present uh, another <laughs> vision of atheism. And, um, but, but like there was this study out of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga that found, and they, they basically, they surveyed members of atheist groups where again, you'd probably expect to find like the most hardcore folks, like folks who were drawn in by the voices of Richard Dawkins. And yet, you know, a very small percentage of those folks said they considered themselves anti-religious. And mm. anecdotally, that's really borne out in my, you know, over the years I've gone to all kinds of places. You know, my first book was on being an atheist. And so I've like traveled around a ton and, and that, you know, definitely has proven true. Like it's, I think the majority of atheists, um, view religion as more complicated than, um, than, you know, Richard Dawkins presents it as. <laughs> um, but what I think is like a loss for a ton of atheists, even ones that are maybe more, um, open to religious people, to treating religion, you know, and, and people who follow religion respectfully, um, is the sort of like wealth of insight that religions have to offer. Um, and you know, I'm biased, right. I have like two degrees in religious studies. So like, <laughs> I think religion has tons to offer, obviously. Um, but, I think that, you know, my hope is that when we sort of, because I agree with you, I think we're headed, I think we're in some, this sort of reformation um, that's happening. I think it, you know, it's it's much more sort of loosely um, organized, uh, which again, like really sort of maps onto how a lot of change is happening in our society right now. Um, but I hope that what doesn't happen is that those, you know, insights that religious 
traditions have to offer get sort of like left behind. Um, I don't think that they will, but I do think that, you know, um, like I, (laughs) I think that a lot of us think that we are familiar with the insights of religious traditions because we like saw an episode of Veggie Tales once when we were a kid (laughs) or something. Um, and, but, but, you know, one of the things like, so a couple, um, friends of mine started this podcast years ago called Harry Potter is a sacred text. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> you have not. So the, the whole conceit of the podcast is they treat Harry Potter as if it's a sacred text. And so what that means is like, you know, they go back to the text again and again, they do sort of close reading of, of like a specific line. They read it over and over again and reflect, you know, all the, all these sort of like ways of reading a sacred text that, um, you know, provide, all, you know, all of the sort of like, so, if you just sort of encounter a story from the Bible or a representation of a story from the Bible in popular culture, you're not really engaging with a sacred text in the way that it's sort of meant to be engaged with, which is like, there's again, all these sort of like specific ways of reading. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, it's not just the sort of content within sacred texts, but also like ways of thinking about what it means for something to be sacred and, how we relate to it and how it informs our lives. And those are the things that I worry about us sort of like leaving behind. And so like, yes, I'm an atheist in the sense that like, well, again, I think one of the, one of the fundamental misunderstandings of atheism that a lot of people have, which is again, like not their fault, (laughs) but, um, is there's this link, I think between atheism and certainty for a lot of folks like, Oh, atheists are like, are just sure that there's no God and whatever, Whereas, you know, when I'm teaching about atheism and agnosticism in my classes, I talk about how, you know, when it comes to the question of whether or not there is a God or, or multiple gods, there's a sort of, um, there are basically four big categories that people can fall into. If you think of it like a quadrant, um, there's agnostic atheists, Gnostic atheists, agnostic theists, and Gnostic theists. So mm-hmm. Gnostic starts with a G for those who aren't familiar. Um, and so I, I would be an agnostic atheist, which basically means that, you know, when it comes to the question of whether or not there's a God, I think it's an unanswerable question. Like, I can't say with absolute certainty. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot that I don't understand about the world. There's a lot that, like, you know, we um, think we know and understand that we obviously will be, you know, we'll find out many years down the road that we were completely wrong about, as we have throughout the history of human civilization. Um, So I think it's beyond my ability to, like, measure or prove or disprove or whatever. Um, but my sort of like operating theory based on what I've experienced, what I perceive in the world, what I've read and studied is I think that there isn't. And that's how I live. I live as if there isn't. But I also know that there's a real limitations to my knowledge and I could learn more and come to believe something differently. Whereas a Gnostic atheist is someone like Richard Dawkins who says like, we can pretty definitively say, or we can definitively say that there's not a God. It's not possible for there to be one. Here's how. And then there, the same kinds of positions exist within theism as well. And I find that I often have more in common with someone who's agnostic about their theism than I do with someone who shares my atheism, but who's Gnostic about it. Because an agnostic theist has the same kind of like relationship with their belief. Um, and they have the same kind of curiosity about like wanting to always learn more and, and be stretched and, and, um, 
you know, I think that like, so basically, you know, one of these axes in this quadrant is about belief and the other is about certainty. So it's like, what do you believe? And also how sure are you of it? And I think that, um, I'm not saying that you can't, you can't have any sort of curiosity about your own beliefs if you feel like absolutely certain of, about them. But I do think that with certainty comes, you know, less curiosity and you're sort of, you feel like you've kind of landed on your answer. And, um, you know, I am an atheist because, you know, I've sort of arrived at this position of thinking like, well, this is probably the most likely, you know, thing, but it doesn't mean that I don't think that religions have a lot to offer, that I don't personally gain a lot from engaging with them. And it also doesn't mean that I think that, you know, I've sort of figured it out and that there's nothing more to think about. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, that's okay. Also really interesting, super helpful. I think most of the people that listen to the show are believers in some form or another. Most of them, I think Christians. And, um, and I think there are a lot of misconceptions about atheists uh, because of the representation that um, the media largely brings us, which is like, um, it, it's almost like the religious people perpetuate this too. I don't know if you've ever seen um, God's Not Dead, the Kevin Sorbo uh, Christian <laughs> I, film. I haven't seen it, but I feel like I, I have the gist of it. <laughs> it <laughs> the atheists that they always portray in Christian movies are like the Richard Dawkins types who are who come up with a definitive explanation and a scientific experiment that they've used to prove that there is no God, where I think, I think you're right that largely atheists aren't really thinking that way, right? They're, they're usually just thinking, here's where I'm at now. It's been educated by all of these things that I've experienced in my life and the conclusions that I've come to and the philosophies that have resounded with me. It doesn't mean that I know everything about everything. Right. Most people that are certain about really anything spiritual come off as a complete asshole to, <laughs> to like most people. Right. And I think um, like that's a big part of what like a lot of the nothing in particular is like are sort of turned off by is like anyone who's says like, well, here's exactly what, you know, what the answer is. And this is a culture, too, that um, we've been fed this like this um, this thinking that we were supposed to for so many years believe that whatever mainstream news outlets were telling was were telling us was like true and there was never any spin to it. And then, you know, 20 years or so ago, that really started to break down and people started to sort of distrust that. You got all these splinter alternative news sites that then did exactly what the mainstream news was doing, but even worse than that. Yeah. And now it's the point where you literally just can't believe a single thing that you read anywhere unless you've gone and, and verified it by, you know, 12 other uh, different places. Absolutely. So it is like a distrust of authority. Again, coming back to that same topic, it's, it's all stemming from like this distrust of thinking that it, like everything is fake now. This is like yeah. this is this is the postmodern post postmodern world that we're living in. It's like absolutely it, everything is a simulation. Or um, <laughs> and if if it's not that, then you just kind of have to pick something that feels right and go with it. Because otherwise, you're just going to be floundering. You'll be lost. Yeah. Well, and I mean that's the thing. Like when I talk to people over and over again who are like me, sort of in this like you know nuns place, like deinstitutionalized and whatever is like there's a lot of a feeling of freedom that comes with that for a lot of people, I think. Like they're freed from the constraints of these institutions that have been harmful. But also there's this feeling of being kind of adrift or being lost. And, you know, I grew up non-religious. This is like a little bit of my sort of background in faith. I grew up in a non-religious family. And 
I felt kind of adrift. Like I had a really good friend just up the street when I was a kid who was being raised in a multi-faith household. So her mom was Jewish. Her dad was Catholic. She was encouraged to sort of go with what resonated with her. So she was really involved in the Jewish community. And I would, I was invited over to her house for holidays. And like, she was a part of this bigger story. She was a part of this community. And then I sort of looked back at my own life and my family and was like, well, what do we believe in, you know? (laughs) And this feeling of like, yeah, just not really having a place of feeling adrift ultimately is like what led me to this non-denominational evangelical Christian church that I was invited to when I was 11 And I ended up converting because they so powerfully offered me this sense of of place and belonging, this story to be a part of. Um, And of course, they were also like really vehemently anti-LGBT. And so this presented this big challenge for me. Mm. Fortunately, my mom is incredible. And even though she wasn't really particularly religious herself, she watched me sort of like go through this metamorphosis and become this really withdrawn person because I was struggling privately with this fundamentalist faith and this sexual sexuality. Um, and so she like went and read my journal <laughs> where I was writing about it. And she, um, because she felt like, well, I'm not equipped to like help him with this. She um, called up churches in the area. She found an affirming minister at a Lutheran church and took me to talk to him. And um, that totally set me on this path toward like being in affirming community and experiencing really religion at its best. So I sort of had this introduction to religion as a child that piqued my curiosity. I then sort of became a Christian and experienced religion at its worst. (laughs) And then I experienced religion at its best. So by the time I was finished with high school and I decided I wanted to go to college, I was like, well... I want to help people in the way that like that minister helped me. I want to help people who are struggling to find their place in the world, who are looking for where they can find meaning in their lives. And the person I know who did that for me was this minister. So, you know, that's maybe what I'll do. And then once I started studying religion, it was my professors, all of whom were Christian um, at this Lutheran university, who really encouraged me to ask myself these questions that I try to hopefully have my students ask themselves as well, which is what they believe and what matters to them and and where those beliefs come from. And through that process, I came to realize that I had become a Christian, mostly because I was trying to meet these needs that I think we all have, the need for meaning, the need for belonging. Um, And I happened into Christianity, but not because it was actually this sort of genuine expression of what I understand to be true. Um, and, and so, you know, I understand that feeling of, you know, how the need, that need, how urgent those needs can feel for meaning, for belonging can lead us to places that aren't always very healthy or helpful. Um, and I think when we're not trying to be sort of mindful about how we're meeting those needs, we tend to do them and try to meet them in less healthy ways. Like I Mm -hmm. think about, you know, part of the reason why I wrote IRL, my most recent book, is because I started to notice that I was trying to use the internet in the same way that I've used, like in trying to try and meet the, some of those same needs, but I was doing it really mindlessly. So I would just like spend hours on Twitter, not really aware that I was like trying to meet this need to like find a sense of meaning and a sense of belonging in my life. And, and so again, like I think my big, 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 like, thing that I would like to see happen is, you know, 
for us to more directly like address head on the fact that these needs still exist in people, the need for meaning and belonging. But for a lot of these people, they're not turning to religious institutions to meet them. And so where are they turning? Like trying to figure out how to make sure that people are addressing those needs. Cause again, I think we all have them. It's, um, it's a common experience that I hear from people that have studied religion, that they go from being uh, having faith to not having faith anymore after having studied religion further. People who, who go as far as going to seminary and then all of a sudden they, they, they're nearing the end of their program and all of a sudden they need to deconstruct everything about their faith and, and either try to put it back together or just leave it behind and say, okay, well, it's no longer something that I can be a part of. So it's always interesting to hear that because it can go in a lot of different directions. And especially being, you know, LGBT um, in any form or another, it's like kind of an alphabet soup now that the um, the number of identities that we can splinter off into in the world now are are many and and largely the the mainstream uh, Christian uh, churches overall don't support any of them for the most part. I mean there, there are some affirming, uh, denominations, but largely, I think that Christians are still kind of not cool with being gay or being trans in any form. Um, so it's it can be really hard for people, young people especially, who are searching for that kind of um, meaning or searching for a place to be welcomed into. And, and they're young, so they're not part of the bar scene and they're not part of the club scene and they don't really have the friend groups that you find in adulthood, that they kind of veer into these institutions that then treat them in a hostile manner even though initially you're you're welcomed in, like we love you, but then also you can't be that and you need to change. I think it's a horrible thing. I mean, it, it's it's really sad because it turns people away from the message of like, ultimately the message of Jesus was like, hey, be be nice to each other, like love yeah. each other, and and don't don't be cruel. And 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 there's a lot of other rules there too, of course. But yeah, no, I, I and I always try. Like I feel so fortunate that. Like, yes, I had that initial experience, but then I had like such affirming experiences and I got to meet like LGBT Christians when I was like 14, you know, like I was very lucky. I'm still very grateful to my mom, um, amazing parent. Um, but, you know, I a lot of people are not as lucky. And um, so I, I always try and be really clear that, you know, I'm not, not a Christian because I had negative experiences with Christianity. I'm not a Christian because ultimately that was where my sort of path led me. But, um, I am so grateful that there are people within religious spaces who are working to make them more welcoming, who are working to address, you know, the long troubling history of these institutions around LGBTQ inclusion, um, you know, my boyfriend is a, an Episcopal deacon, um, soon to be a priest. I have learned a lot about Episcopalianism since we've been dating. Deacon is first, then you can be a priest after that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he has more theological education than I do um, and, you know, came out on the other side of that process, you know, having this incredibly, you know, deep relationship with his faith. And so, it also isn't the case. It is definitely a trope that, you know, people go into, I, you know, I didn't go to seminary until I was already firmly an atheist, but there are definitely people who go to, on to pursue higher education and then lose their faith. But there are also people who, and I think like, again, there are, there is a hunger in a lot of people for, like, they may have rejected the institution or not feel at home in the institution, but 
they still, again, I think really have these needs that, um, you know, to, to like, gosh, I mean, the last couple of years have been like deeply traumatizing for basically everyone. Mm -hmm. And, um, so many people are feeling atomized, isolated, disconnected. And, you know, again, I think that religious traditions are these like great storehouses of insight, of practices, and you don't have to belong to one of those traditions to be able to mine them for, you know, all of the sort of good that they have to offer. And so that is definitely like, if my students take away one thing from my course, if, you know, over the years, I've been this like voice in atheism in like organized atheism, like trying to advocate for that. Like if people take one thing away, I hope it's that, that like these traditions have a lot to offer and, you know, they're there. Um, and just, be, just because you don't necessarily believe in the exact sort of most literal interpretation of every single line in the book doesn't mean that you have to just throw it out. Um, which is why um, I don't want to, you know, cut this part of the conversation for, short, but I'm excited for us to talk about John 12, 24. Because, I was just going to say, so yeah. while you were religious, you got a tattoo of a Bible verse on you. I did. Um, that was John 12, 24. Um, do you want to maybe give a little background on why that stuck out to you before we read it? I, I know we've sure. got a lot of exposition here. But. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my first tattoo was this tattoo on my right calf, um, and it's a stock of wheat and it has John 12, 24 next to it. Um, and that will all become clear when we, <laughs> when we get into the discussion around John 12, 24, but it, um, the verse had like personal significance for me because, when I was a teenager, um, you know, I got involved in this program called Minnesota Metro Lutheran Teens Encounter Christ, MML Tech. And they put on these weekend retreats um, for, you know, teen Christians. And I was involved in like an LGBT Christian group. But then this was this like church group that I would go to that was not specifically LGBT, but that where I came out and it, everyone was very welcoming and it was very inclusive and it became this like very safe community for me. And I, that verse, um, John 12, 24 was like, it was often talked about at these retreats. And so, you know, it really represented um, that community for me, that feeling of, of belonging. Um, and so I got it, but I, what's, you know, I, I got it when I was 18. Like, so that would have been April of um, the, of, you know, my, of like my senior year of high school. And, and then, you know, fast forward a few months later, I'm off at college, I start studying religion and like very quickly my Christianity, like my Christian identity sort of falls apart. <laughs> and, um, so the tattoo became this source of resentment. Like I would look at it sort of embarrassed or I would try and cover it up. I felt stupid. It was like, I had just gotten this tattoo and like, now I'm like, oh, you know, I don't believe in this anymore. <laughs> and, um, I, but my perspective on the tattoo started to change because um, I went on a study abroad trip when I was in college to El Salvador to study liberation theology. Because even though I stopped identifying as a Christian, I kept studying religion. Um, and I was really, really interested in like Oscar Romero was this huge figure for me in liberation theology. He's probably like the first name that comes to mind when people hear about liberation theology. And, um, so we, I went to El Salvador to study liberation theology and we went to the site where he was assassinated 
And when I was there, I like on the way there, I'd been complaining about this tattoo because I was wearing shorts because it was warm out and people saw the tattoo and normally I wore pants. So normally people didn't see it. And I was like feeling embarrassed about it. And then we go to the site where he was assassinated and I learn at the site that like in his final homily before he was assassinated, he like talked about John 12, 24. And yeah, and it felt like just this like, oh my gosh, like, wow, um, moment. And I couldn't really appreciate it fully in the moment because, you know, my deconversion was like so fresh still. (laughs) But over time, I've come to really appreciate having that tattoo there. And I would never cover it up because, you know, those years I spent within Christian spaces were so formative um, and played such a big role in how I see the world. And, you know, that like it, it, I would never want to sort of cover that up. And, you know, I, I wish that we had better ways of talking about how religion can shape us without having to sort of boil it down to just this essentialist identity, because, you know, I may not consider myself Christian or identify as Christian, but like, I'm very Lutheran in my worldview. Um, (laughs) Not just because I spent, you know, formative years in Lutheran churches and went to a Lutheran college, but it just like so much of, I spent so much time in these spaces thinking about these things that they've come to really shape who I am. And, you know, uh, when I think about Oscar Romero, someone who was assassinated because they were trying to sort of really practice what they believed in the world. Um, I think also often about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran theologian Mm -hmm. who lived in Germany at the time of the rise of the Nazis. yeah. Yeah, and he ended up participating in a plot, uh, an attempt to assassinate Hitler. And that's ultimately why he was imprisoned and killed. And um, Bonhoeffer has this idea um, or had this idea that um, Christians have a responsibility to live as if there is no God. And what he meant by that is that Christians shouldn't expect God to intervene in the world in the face of injustice. And instead, it was the Christian responsibility to try to discern God's will and then act as God's agents in the world. And I may not believe in God. I may not sort of believe in that sort of specific part of the equation, but I too live as if there is not a God. I too see my atheism as being foundational to like, you know, trying to challenge myself to live in the world in the way that, you know, I think is going to better the conditions of life for others. Because for me, if there isn't a God that's going to intervene in the world, then I have a responsibility to to try and address the problems that I see myself. And so even if my motivation might be different than my Lutheran colleagues at Augsburg who see living as if there is no God as like part of the Christian responsibility, ultimately it leads us to the same place. And so anyway, when I think about like, Judaism is this really interesting example of a religious tradition that does not require like belief in God. (laughs) I think (laughs) according to Gallup, 70%, I think, or more of Jewish people in the United States say that you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. And I wish there were better ways of talking about like being Lutheran shaped, (laughs) but not (laughs) believing in God. Uh, Because I think in many ways, it's sort of silly that I, it's like, just this technicality that I'm not Lutheran because I don't believe in God, but like so much of my worldview is like aligned with Lutheranism and, and shaped by it and that sort of thing. So anyway, that's a little of the background. (laughs) Well, this passage um, uh, speaks of like giving, giving oneself 
to the earth so that fruit can be born from from your death. I'm going to read it from the ESV, and I'm actually going to read into uh, 25 because I I really love 25 too. Uh, It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, So 24 is saying, essentially, a grain of wheat on its own, uh, a a solitary sprig, uh, will do nothing until it's planted. Um, The use of death there is kind of odd because that's not really what happens to a seed. A seed, like, cracks open and gives new life. It doesn't really die. But the, the metaphor there is that, like, you as an individual will will not essentially as a soul as a solitary being in the world will not bear the fruit until you give of yourself and give to others. Um, I think that a lot of Christians read this. Most Christians, I would say, probably read this as saying like you have to give yourself to the church. You have to give your life to to Jesus as as like in a life of servitude to God that will bear the fruit that you're looking for. But when you talk about being like Lutheran shaped or, or acting in the world as though, even if you don't know that God exists or acting as though God doesn't exist and just trying to be um, uh, like a har- like an arbiter of God's like message or, or not an arbiter, but um, uh, a messenger. Um, this is saying you give to other people, you know, right? I mean, is that, is that how you interpret it now as someone who, who doesn't believe in God? What's interesting is like, so when I first encountered that verse, um, it was in in this teen program, tech, and we would talk about John 12, 24 as this idea of like dying to yourself. So, you know, the, the grain of wheat has to die in order for new life to sort of begin. And it was this idea that you have to like design, die to your yourself and your own sort of like selfish interests in order to like be a good Christian. And I think there is some there's some truth in that in the sense that like, you know, I part of why I think religions at their best offers people something really meaningful is like left to my own devices, I'm much more likely to like act selfishly and to prioritize my own needs over other people's. And like ultimately that's not how I want to live. I want to be more mindful of others, but like sometimes I need some help in getting there. <laughs> and so I do have to die to myself sometimes in the sense that I have, I need help in order to overcome some of my like, you know, worse angels. <laughs> um, and, and yet like, I also think that, you know, going back to this sort of like disaffection with institutional religion or maybe the more narrow ways that re- institutional religions sometimes talk about these things, there's this idea that dying to yourself means like dying to yourself completely, like, you know, giving up everything you might ever want, um, living this very ascetic life, um, you know, and giving everything to the church or whatever. And, you know, ultimately, I don't think that that is the read of this verse. Like, I, I think that the way that you frame it is much more useful because it's not about dying to yourself in the sense that you're like giving something up or losing something. It's that, you become something greater, something more when you enter into this like collaborative sort of process. Like this, you know, wheat, it grows because of the soil, because of all the nutrients in it, because of water, because, you know, like it is a part of something larger. Um, 
it is not this solitary thing. It, it exists in a world, in, you know, a community of sorts. And I think that part of what helps us like die to ourselves, quote unquote, in a good way, in a, you know, in a way that makes us something more than we were before is recognizing that our well-being and ultimately like what will make us happiest is recognizing that like our well-being is intertwined with the well-being of everyone else. It absolutely speaks to community and the power of community. I thought it was really interesting that Paul uses this um, this metaphor, not exactly, but uses this kind of element uh, in 1 Corinthians, I want to say uh, 12, but then immediately talks about the pieces of the body and how important it is for each individual to be a part of the body of the church, which to me doesn't say necessarily uh to die completely or to give oneself over completely and to turn into something completely different. It's to be yourself in the context of this larger body. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lay person. I haven't done any, any religious studies outside of like really basic religious education in college. I just read the Bible all the time now for a number of reasons. But um, it's so interesting to see that like there is so many different ways to take this passage and to run it with it in your own way. There's a there's a pastor in Portland. Um, his name is Josh White, and he he talks a lot about this concept called the good death, which is exactly I think the original reading that I was talking about of this, where you're like you are dying entirely to yourself and you are giving yourself entirely to Jesus, um, which I can see from like a devotional standpoint from from the standpoint of a church that's trying to build itself could be a really useful um, thing to encourage people to do but I think in 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 the, the world that we live in right now there are a lot fewer people that will be willing to say um, I am no longer me I am going to become this uh, and rather I think, it's going to be a lot easier for folks to get folks engaged in this by saying, no, 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 it's not that you need to die. It's that you need to be part of the soil. You need to be part of this farming that we're doing. We're well, farming it's, people. It's not that, a, you know, I mean, if we like take the metaphor, like literally, it's not that a seed like stops being a seed. Like it just, it become it grows, you know? And, you know, I think that there's this, I remember when I was a Christian, this idea that like you'll become totally new um, in in Christ, right? And gosh, I mean, it was appealing to me because like there was a lot about myself that I felt shame around that I would have loved to just leave behind. But like, again, part of what I love about tattoos, because I have tons now, which is so funny because in the immediate aftermath of like when I stopped being a Christian, I, I looked at that tattoo with so much shame and embarrassment. And I was like, I'm never going to do that again. And now I have so many. And part of it is because I like that they all serve as these sort of reminders of like who I was at the moment that I got them. And all of those, like ultimately who I am as a person is this kind of unfolding, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, con I'm building on who I have been and becoming something more as shaped by the people around me, by my circumstances. And, and I think that, you know, if we think of this idea that like, in order for a seed to become a stalk of wheat, like it has to die, um, again, like there's one way you could read this of saying like, you know, it, 
the seed is gone and now it's a stock of wheat. And like, you know, we, we have to sort of become totally subsumed, like who we were has to become totally subsumed and, and transformed into something totally different. But I think that there's another way of looking at it, which is a little bit more in line with like how seeds actually function, which is that <laughs> like in the proper conditions, whether that's like, you know, in Jesus, if you are a believer in that sense, or in the context of a community that's sort of pushing you to be the best version of yourself and holding you accountable to the things that you say you believe, that sort of give that those proper conditions give you the opportunity to sort of build on who you are and grow and become something more than you could have just on your own. So like, we're not only called to be the seed that allows itself to be planted and sprouted, but we're also called to be the soil and the water for other people who, who are growing their own stock. Um, Absolutely. Who are and it, becoming part of that community. Well, and this is like how crops work, right? Like, uh, you know, one season, you know, this wheat grows and then it becomes the soil. It dies and it becomes the soil. And then it becomes what supports the next season of crops growing. And, you know, I, I feel really, really fortunate that I've had lots of people along the way, whether it was that minister that my mom first brought me to when I was really in the throes of like a deep despair around my sexual orientation and my faith, or this Minnesota Metro Lutheran Teens Encounter Christ community. Um, that's the reason I have this tattoo or the university where I studied and, and was able to go on this study abroad trip that was really meaningful or, you know, all the different people along the way who have sort of held space for me to think about who I am, what matters to me, what I believe in, you know, I, I have been so fortunate and, well, that's again an unfolding and I'm still growing and being challenged and my beliefs are always sort of evolving. I also am trying to be that soil for others at this point in my life. I'm trying to help hold space for other people to, you know, to do that work themselves in a way that's like safe and makes them feel supported. And I feel like um, that's absolutely what you're doing too. I mean, not just in giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with you, but for everyone who listens and has this opportunity to think about like, and, and to, again, like to me, this is what religion at its best does. Like John 12, 24 is this small little seed of a verse that gives us this, if we engage with it in a particular way, it gives us this opportunity to think about these things. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, think of, for me, like it's, it's honestly probably the first time I've like really engaged with this verse since, you know, the story I was sharing, you know, since I was in college, um, I don't really, I can't really say I've returned to this verse since then. And, but this conversation makes me feel like I, I should come back to this regularly. And part of what, again, these sacred texts I think offer us is, you know, this thing that we come back to regularly at different seasons in our life. And maybe we look at them in a different way because our context is different, or maybe we're reminded of some insight that we had the last time we looked at them that we feel really disconnected from now. But uh, I think it's a real service. So I'm I'm glad that you're doing this and I appreciate that we've had the chance to do this a little bit. Um, but I also, I'm not trying to 
end this because I know like <laughs> I felt I felt myself being like, oh wow, I'm like wrapping up here, but that's not what I mean because you know I know that you have been doing a lot of thinking about this verse, and I'd love to hear any other insights or thoughts you have about it. Um, no, I mean I think that what you just said was exactly how I kind of wanted to cap this because um, there will be different seasons of our lives, which is like that very Christian phrase, uh, a season of your life where something I'm very Lutheran shaped. Of course. (laughs) uh, There will be seasons of our lives where we will be the wheat. Uh, There will be seasons of our lives where we will be the soil. Um, There will be seasons of our lives where we will be the rain. Uh, It's like at each, each chance that we have to engage, I think honestly, like uh, you saying that this has been the first time that you've come back to this is kind of, that's, that's wild. And it's like really cool that you came on and talked to me about this. Um, I haven't also, you know, we come from the same place. So I think we both have kind of like Lutheran informed uh, worldviews. I, I was raised Catholic, but it was very like not super traditional Catholic kind of church. Well, and but, you're from Minnesota, correct? Yeah, <laughs> yeah like yeah. me. And it's like, um, I, I feel like Lutheranism pervades the culture here. So even like if you are in a Catholic church um, in Minnesota, like there is Lutheranness just like everywhere in the culture here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but there, you know, there have been times in my life where I have needed soil to root down into. I've needed people to be a grounding force. I've needed people to support me as I grew. And, and you know, as I get older, I, I find more and more of the urge to be that for other people who mm-hmm. feel adrift, who feel lost. Um, I certainly don't know it all. I barely know anything, I think, in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. But, um, but you know, we want to support each other and we want to love each other in whatever way that we have the capacity to in whatever time that we're living. Yeah, I mean, I think a... You know, even the people who know a lot, like, still don't know much. (laughs) I mean, I read this um, really, really, really thought-provoking book recently called God, Human, Animal, Machine by Megan O'Geeblin. And it's basically about how people who are working on the sort of cutting edges of technology are coming up against the same kinds of, like, questions that theologians have wrestled with. Um, And ultimately, like, you read that book and you're like, wow, even the smartest people in the world, like don't know anything. Like there are questions that (laughs) we have had since the beginning of time that we're no closer to answering than we ever were. And, um, you know, it's humbling, but also like it shows that this sort of like, there's this false certainty that a lot of people have had that again, I think is a big part of why like people are distrustful of institutions or disenchanted with them. And I think that what is most helpful is like, for me, the people who are able to acknowledge like, oh, actually, I really don't know very much. Like, those are people I feel I can trust and that I feel I can open up to and be supported by. And when I realized that early on as a chaplain, that, like, my job was not to have the answers, but was really just to sort of support and hold space for people to to wrestle and to sit with the questions, it was this huge relief <laughs> because I don't have the answers, clearly, Um And so I think it's wonderful that you are doing this. And I I feel like it's been a real gift to me today. And um, I think what you offer is a real gift in general because, yeah, it isn't your job to like have all the answers, but what you're doing is creating space for people to think about things that are really important to think about alongside someone who's also just trying to sort of figure it out Mm. and sit in the uncertainty of it too. So um, yeah, I, I think what you're doing is wonderful. 
Thank and you. I appreciate the opportunity to be a small part of it today. No, honestly, thank you so much. I mean, I've had so many different people on um, from all kinds of different uh, viewpoints, and it's been a real blessing just to be able to talk to to so many different people about something that even since I started doing this a year ago, it's been almost a year, um, my views ha- have changed. My faith has changed in so many different ways, and that I've been able to talk to all of these different, fascinating people along the way, brilliant people who have helped me grow myself. And and then people will message me and say, wow, your show helps me. It's like, no, 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 I'm helping myself with this. Uh, I'm I'm so glad that it helps you, but like, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. So like, I feel so blessed that people have, have been able to find anything in this and, and help me to engage in it too. So, um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, do you have anything you want to plug? You talked about the podcast earlier. Uh, <laughs> the show is called Unread. Yeah, the the podcast is called Unread. Um, yeah, if you want to learn more about that or my books or just anything else, um, probably the like central place to find it all is just my website, which is chrisstedmanwriter.com. So uh, Stedman spelled like Oprah's boyfriend, S-T-E-D-M-A-N. Um, and then you can also find me on like all the socials at Chris D. Stedman. That's where you found me. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I, I usually close my episodes with a poem. Um, mm. This is uh, this week's poem is called Submission to Time. It's by James L. White, part of his Poems of Submission. How beautiful we are when submitted fully to time, knowing some tree from childhood crashing then to earth. Time, the land history found in our pulse. Land and tree rise like a woman's laughter in a bar. See the filthy windows. It's three in the afternoon and we are drawn from all our fiber. Three o'clock and the coffee's old. A chill across our backs. Now the tenement ages against the paling sun across the way. Watch the evening news. Don't eat so much salt. See the old man's dog. The wind-filled street and splitting elm from such a timeless place. Thanks, everybody. It's nice to be home.
say.